Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Too many hands, too many different agencies working the case. When you get too many hands into something, there's something going to be missed. It's important to make sure that we do our best, the best job possible to get the answers. And friends and family members are still searching for answers. On January 19, 1983, 27-year-old Jeanette Robertson was murdered in the basement of Gamble's Hardware Store in Reed City. Um, I remember the sinking feeling and knowing that I probably knew who it was and just hoping, I hated to see it be anybody, but hoping that it wasn't her. This stuff only happens to other people. This is like, uh, it's like a book. Justice for Jeanette! Justice for Jeanette! Justice for Jeanette! I don't believe it's a person, you know, a stranger that happened to, to walk through uh, town that that day that did this. The injuries uh, to her suggest that there were, uh, you know, a, a fit of rage during this incident. They've got a murderer walking around here, and they don't realize it. A killer on the loose and a family left without answers. Jeanette Robertson's murder in Reed City has gone unsolved for more than a quarter century. 32 years later, friends and loved ones gathered at the Reed City Depot for the second annual Justice for Jeanette Walk. I was told that uh, she was always very friendly, always very nice, that she was a great mom. On January 19, 1983, 27-year-old Jeanette Robertson was found dead in the basement of the Gamble store where she worked in what is now known today as the Reed City Hardware. Back in 1983, Jeanette lived in Reed City and worked in the pet department in the basement of the old Gamble store. When a homicide occurs, you know, the first 48 hours, 72 hours are the most important and the most crucial. She went to work. They found her body, um, I think, at around 4. An employee went down there and found her and called the police. My thought today is, you know, this is kind of like a to me is like a get even type thing. It's pretty well known that the husband, Jeanette's husband and her were not together at that point. There's no indication that she was doing anything, you know, outside the ordinary other than, you know, just a normal hometown girl that was, uh, you know, having some issues at home. Could it have been somebody with an infatuation with her? Yes. Is that a possibility? Yes. It needs to be solved. Justice for Jeanette! Justice for Jeanette! Over the last three decades, countless tips have come in, dozens of interviews have been performed, and a sketch from the information that Michigan State Police put together was made. But still, no murderer has ever been found. Friends and family have organized a memorial walk through the quiet town of Reed City and right past the very store that she never left exactly 31 years ago. This homicide has always been somewhat active. Um, people in the area have never really always, you know, haven't really let it go. A decades-old murder still haunts a town in Osceola County. That's because whoever killed Jeanette Robertson back in 1983 remains a mystery. Maybe just the right little piece will fall in place. We never know. And to remember her, the family, and, and wanting the community to remember, I think that's a good thing. Detectives released three separate sketches, three different witness descriptions of a man who police wanted to talk to. This was a brutal murder. The victim received a number of injuries. In the middle of the day on January 19, 1983, Jeanette's life was tragically cut short. We couldn't call him a suspect, a person of interest, 
may, may be a suspect, but at this time could only be a witness. So they were actually trying to locate anybody and everybody that had been in and out of that store. They could have been somebody that may have went down the staircase. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Who Killed? A slow burn media podcast. I am your host, Bill Huffman. And this week we will be exploring the mysterious murder of Jeanette Roberson out of Reed City, Michigan. I've noticed a trend in the cases that I choose because once I start looking into one case from a date or a place, I inevitably end up looking at another case. This pattern can be seen most often with the cases that I've covered in the Massachusetts area as well as the cases I've recently covered in Texas. And like all true crime enthusiasts, I end up down some interesting rabbit holes and come out with more questions than when I went in. For example, the case we are covering this week happened in broad daylight, in the middle of a workday, at the victim's place of employment. How does this happen? I will once again run you through the facts of the case, some theories, and possible suspects. But since this case remains unsolved, take what you hear and maybe you can figure out who killed Jeanette Roberson. On January 19, 1983, Jeanette Roberson was working at the pet store at Gambles in Reed City, Michigan. The 27-year-old worked in the pet department and she was found severely beaten and sexually assaulted between 1 and 4 p.m. in the basement of what is now Reed City Hardware. Jeanette and her husband and their two young children had moved to the small town of Reed City about eight months prior to her death. So it's possible that somebody could have had an infatuation, but she was not living in the area for very long. According to Detective Sergeant John Forner of the Michigan State Police, quote, in broad daylight, basically someone entered the store and just killed Jeanette. It was that basement where another employee found Jeanette's bruised and, well, battered body on that afternoon of January 19th, 1983. Now, the store was open, and there were other employees and customers walking around upstairs. But apparently no one had heard anything. But Jeanette was severely beaten, and what she was beaten with were different blunt objects that were found amongst the store basement, and she had also been sexually assaulted. Now, the belief is the murderer walked up the stairs and into the open. But still, no witnesses, no concrete leads, and not a single suspect. According to 9 and 10 News, detectives are putting together binders full of background and ordering evidence collected at the time to be resubmitted for new testing. Now, we've seen this done in many cases, the Mahalovic case, for example, with the blanket and the curtain that were recently tested. I should say recently. It was in 2016. But nonetheless, they are still looking through the clothing items that were left behind by the person possibly responsible. 
Jeanette's body was found in a 10 by 10 foot room that was filled with pet supplies and basically stuff to stock the shelves. The 27 year old mother had died of an apparent head wound. And as I mentioned before, it was blunt force trauma. And according to the initial reports published in the Pioneer, the instruments used to commit the crime were, again, they were found amongst the basement. They were not something that the perpetrator had brought with them. Are there advancements in forensics that could help us on these cold cases? Is there evidence that has never been submitted to the lab before? These are basically the questions that investigators and cold case investigators are asking at this present moment. Investigators do hope that the new capabilities in testing of trace evidence such as hair, fibers, and DNA will eventually lead to the actual perpetrator of the crime. Now again, this is one of those things where you see in a lot of cold cases where the investigation kind of reaches the point where you kind of have to throw your hands up and acknowledge it's basically going to be up to science to find the actual killer. This isn't something where, you know, you get caught red-handed, especially with fiber evidence. You can see it in the Atlanta child murder case where fiber evidence was absolutely critical in making the connection to Wayne Williams. Now, I know that there is a lot of controversy and especially being back on the public's radar with the mayor reopening the Atlanta child case. But the fiber evidence in that case was something that was pretty good and not something that would necessarily be thrown out or anything today. So I will be interested to see what happens in that particular case. But as I mentioned before, they are basically looking for any little bit of evidence that they may have missed. And again, I've talked about it before, but in cases like this, especially with Jeanette's, time really is your enemy. You know, it may help you or it may hurt you, and that's for obvious reasons. People's memories fade as the years pass, but also as the years pass, the allegiances you have to one another also change. It is pretty well known that the husband, Jeanette's husband, and her were not living together at the time. And according to Chief Davis, it was, and it absolutely could have been, somebody who had an infatuation with her. Now, the chief told the 9 and 10 News, I think we have more hope than we did 10 years ago. But, you know, we still get people calling in, and there is activity. After covering a number of these cases, I'm beginning to hate it when I hear the case has been given the old death bed albatross, which basically is something that is given to a case that is pretty much not going to be solved, and it's up to the person who committed the crime to make a confession on their deathbed. I hate it when I hear that. Again, it happens, so it is what it is. But technology is still the best chance for an answer in this particular case, and Connie Swander, the director of the Michigan State Police Forensic Laboratory, said that just because the evidence is old doesn't mean it's not useful anymore. And again, almost all the people who were shopping above were identified and questioned, except for one person. Composite sketches were made of that anonymous person, and they were drawn up. I will post those on the website as well. 
He was described as a white man with sandy blonde hair and a blue jacket. He stood around 5 foot 9 inches and weighed approximately 170 pounds. DNA was retrieved from the crime scene, but has not been matched to anybody up until this point. So for the last 31 years, the Reed City Police Department has actually partnered with the Michigan State Police to collect numbers of tips and had basically performed dozens of interviews just basically to try to piece together what happened on that particular day in 1983. And as I mentioned before, the sketch of the possible suspect was created from information that the Michigan State Police had put together in the days following Roberson's death. Quote, we just thought if we got some flyers out there and we printed it, we could get a little bit more awareness. Maybe there's something or someone out there that knows something or has heard something over the years or was on Upton Street that day between 2 and 4 and maybe saw something that they thought might be important, said one of the organizers and author of Redacted, which is all about this case, Jenny Decker. Chief Davis says the chances are slim that the person will still be identified, but he says, as we all know, anything can happen. Now, it is crucial in those first 48 to 72 hours that every piece of evidence is collected. And Chief Davis is very clear on how this case was handled. But in the days immediately following Jeanette's murder, police made no arrests. And after that point, it was really hard for them to find anything to go on. And it basically went cold pretty quickly. Now, Detective John Forner believes the investigation actually was tainted from the start. And he said to the Herald Review, quote, There were too many hands, too many different agencies working the case. When you get too many hands into something, there's something that's going to be missed. It's important to make sure that we do our best. It's our job to get all the answers. Unquote. And now we're basically just going to take a look at some of the possible suspects or suspect. And Detective John Forner had told 9 and 10 News that we always start with the inner circle of the victim, you know, those closest to the victim and work outward. Obviously, her husband was a suspect at the time. And one of the red flags against her husband, Alvin, was that one, they had learned that they were planning to get divorced and two... He did have a mistress. Again, just because one has a mistress and they're getting divorced does not mean that he's also a murderer. And he was actually quickly ruled out as a possible suspect. So the person that they're looking for, as I mentioned before, he was about 20 to 30 and maybe 5'8", 5'9", about 170 pounds. And just an odd note, but possibly wearing a blue jacket. The sketches of the person were basically created by three witnesses, and they used those descriptions to create the different sketches. And again, as I mentioned before, I will put those on the website. Now, the person was believed to have been in gambles shortly before the reported murder. So when police released the sketch, they emphasized that this person was not a suspect or even a person of interest, just somebody they wanted to talk with. Again, we've all seen this play out in many different cases, 
you're not a person of interest until there's a reason to make you a person of interest. So this guy is still unknown, so we still don't know what his deal was. But as with all cases, the significant other will always be the number one suspect. And as I mentioned in Jeanette's case, he was quickly ruled out. And I would assume that has to do with the fact that they were already planning to get divorced and at that point in time she really kind of had began to move on to say that the setting where the murder took place was ideal would be a little bit of a discount to what the middle of the mitten state actually provides and having traveled through the state many times i will tell you that uh, reed city michigan is definitely by all accounts a quaint small town they have victorian homes and they on their website basically um talk about how they're considered the crossroads of 131 and us 10 and i have traveled on us 10 many times and us 10 is literally in the middle of nowhere the one thing up there is dow chemical the other cities around there would be midland uh we're not talking about major metropolitan cities there's the tourist town of Bay City, Michigan, which is, I don't know, about 20 minutes from where Midland is. But yeah, US-10 is absolutely in the middle of nowhere. And Reed City is kind of the perfect little place to raise a family. The town's website likes to boast about the town's vibrant downtown and many business opportunities. And they also talk about the beautiful parks, trails, and the abundant natural beauty and i will admit that it is naturally beautiful it is a beautiful part of this country and it really has been untouched in a lot of different ways it's also considered a great place to camp and basically just to enjoy everything that michigan has to offer so who was jeanette from dna testing to the dixie mafia crime capsule brings you new stories of true crime in american history i'm your host Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Jeanette was basically, like a lot of the women that we've covered in a lot of these cases, considered to be one, beautiful, and two, religious, with an unmistakable kindness. It is said Jeanette lived the life of an ordinary small-town girl, something straight out of the 1950s, according to 9 and 10 News. And Jeanette had actually moved to Reed City back in 1983, and I had mentioned earlier that she had only lived in the town for about nine months before she unfortunately, was murdered. So as the investigation took off, I shouldn't say took off because it was kind of cold from the beginning, you know, Reed City was actually home to three law enforcement agencies, the Reed City Police Department, the Michigan State Police Department, and the Osceola County Sheriff's Department. Newspaper reports at the time say each department actually participated in the investigation. An article published in The Pioneer on January 22, 1983, states police were looking to talk 
to two women who had purchased fish equipment that day, but were definitely not considered suspects. That article also mentions that Roberson's assailant could have been hiding in the basement to ambush her, and the cause of death, as I mentioned before, been described as a blow to the head from a heavy, blunt object. One can only assume what one would find at the basement of a hardware store, so I'm assuming there were plenty of objects that could have been chosen for this very act, unfortunately. Now, tips were far and few between. Police did question a man who had left town on a bus that afternoon, but he was later released with no charges. As I mentioned, they released three sketches of men they wanted to talk to in relation to the case several weeks after the murder. Again, nothing came from that, unfortunately. $7,000 was raised as a reward for information to solve the case, but again, none of the tips led to anything substantial. As I mentioned before, all investigations where a spouse is killed lead to the husband, but Alvin was actually ruled out pretty quickly. And according to Dateline NBC, it was shortly after Jeanette's murder that Alvin and his family moved back to Georgia, and he would actually marry the woman that he had been rumored to be having an affair with. In another part of the Dateline article about Jeanette was the idea that Alvin had something to do with Jeanette's murder, and According to Jeanette's sister, Lana, that theory absolutely holds, quote, no water. According to her sister, Lana, Jeanette had adopted the Jehovah Witness faith, and Alvin did not follow Jeanette in her new religious path, but her faith would have encouraged her to be devoted entirely to him. And an affair wouldn't have affected Jeanette, Lana had said, although she never discussed the matter specifically with her sister. Now, authorities ruled out Alvin, as I mentioned, and the woman that he was having the affair with. And if it wasn't her husband, then who could have killed or wanted to have killed Jeanette? Nobody. I'm a true crime fanatic, so I spend a lot of time looking into the darker sides of life. After a while, though, I need to clear my mind. My newest mental cleanse consists of Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a puzzle game you play right on your phone. It's really cool. Your brain will be engaged as you move through all the levels and face challenging puzzles. But it's a fun, casual game that anyone can play. I recently passed level 35, and I just started playing a few days ago. Best Fiends doesn't take up much of your time, but what it does do is it makes those moments, like waiting for your next video conference, more enjoyable. I have spent a lot of time at home these days, and this has been my go-to app for entertainment. Best part? You don't have to have an internet connection to play. The game is so beautiful, I find it soothing to my mental state, and the cute characters just make it better. Best Fiends updates monthly with new levels and events, so it never gets old. Engage your brain with fun puzzles, and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. As I mentioned before, all investigations where a spouse is killed lead to the husband, but Alvin was actually ruled out pretty quickly. And according to Dateline NBC, it was shortly after Jeanette's murder that Alvin and his family moved back to Georgia, and he would actually marry the woman that he had been rumored to be having an affair with. In another part of the Dateline article about Jeanette was the idea that Alvin had something to do with Jeanette's murder, and 
according to Jeanette's sister, Lana, that theory absolutely holds, quote, no water. According to her sister, Lana, Jeanette had adopted the Jehovah Witness faith, and Alvin did not follow Jeanette in her new religious path, but her faith would have encouraged her to be devoted entirely to him. And an affair wouldn't have affected Jeanette, Lana had said, although she never discussed the matter specifically with her sister. Now, authorities ruled out Alvin, as I mentioned, and the woman that he was having the affair with. And if it wasn't her husband, then who could have killed or wanted to have killed Jeanette. Nobody was ever named a suspect, unfortunately, in her killing, and her life basically exists currently in three different boxes. The emergence of new crime scene technologies since the 1980s will hopefully lead to some of the answers that this family has been looking for. And according to her sister, like John Forner had mentioned there were too many hands, too many different agencies working the case, and they just tried to do their best, but unfortunately they were unable to bring in a suspect or even name a suspect. And there are still problems, because even if they do find certain DNA, if those items were stored in the wrong conditions, basically that DNA can break down and the evidence may never link police to a suspect. And according to Detective George Pratt, who was the lead investigator on the case up until 2012, this took place in the middle of an open business, in the middle of the week, in the middle of the day, in the middle of winter. What the hell was going on? That was my two cents there. There were over 100 people who had come into the store that day and everyone who worked in the store was busy. They had three freight trucks that came in and they were working on unloading freight as it arrived. Police say some details of the murder have been released that could have compromised the case. In particular, the autopsy report was mistakenly released to the family some years in the some years back. And in the 31 years since Roberson's murder, police have interviewed and re-interviewed a number of suspects and witnesses, but they've still never procured enough evidence to actually make an arrest. Quote, at the very least, there is one person who knows exactly what happened, and that's the person who's responsible. And that was said by Michigan State Police Sergeant Mike Stevens. Again, murder cases don't close without a conviction. And to solve this case one day, Stevens says that they would need a confession from a suspect. Identifying a suspect will certainly be a problem, especially after all the years of rumors and basically memories just going to hell in a handbasket. The Herald Review did a retrospective on the case and spoke with a number of the key players in the investigation. As I mentioned, Detective George Pratt was the former lead investigator, and he had told the review that, quote, this person could have committed this crime and not committed another crime ever. But because of the violence, that's not like as far as motive, we've never established a true motive. On occasion, you have a transference of aggression that just triggers the assailant. You can't say that all perpetrators commit another crime, but this was very violent, so we think we should have seen something like this happen someplace else. I will add a little bit to that because, and I don't know if I get to this later or not, but just because they didn't commit another crime doesn't mean that it's not possible. They could have been scared from all of the blood and all of the violence that actually took place during the committing of the crime, and that is the thing that has prevented them from perpetrating any more crimes. Now, some of the theories about Jeanette's case have basically 
gotten from, you know, obviously the husband to the mistress and to just random strangers. We've talked about how weird and unlikely it is a random stranger would have come across this store. But in regards to the first theory about a woman, the brutality of the murder has long been considered a reason to discount any woman in this case. They do say that if she was shot or poisoned, they may have thought a little bit differently about the case. But again, most women do not commit the kind of brutal assaults that this case saw. Now, I will say this in <laughs> To Play Devil's Advocate, just because it hasn't happened or it doesn't happen very often doesn't mean it never happens. Another rumor is that the mistress actually got a man to commit the crime for her and stage the scene as a rage murder. The husband had plenty of access to Jeanette, so why in the hell would he kill her at her place of work during store business hours and again that's just so stupid i don't understand why that would even be a possibility but again it's a theory and it's out there the reed city police chief at the time is quoted saying that whoever murdered Jeanette was definitely filled with a great deal of anger and rage a pioneer article from february 12 1983 says police were looking for a man who purchased gerbils from Jeanette on the morning of the murder and in the same article, they say that, quote, a man was seen driving a green truck. He was questioned, but he was not taken into custody. Reed City-based author Jenny Decker wrote a book about the case titled Red Acted and can be found on Amazon. And she also actually hosts a podcast about this case called Down and Away. And, of course, Jeanette's case is the featured case. Decker, along with Roberson's sister, are now basically the keys to keeping the name of Jeanette Roberson in the news. They have been able to do this by organizing walks within the community to bring awareness to the case. The investigators have actually encouraged both women to continue to promote Jeanette's case because the public, again, will be key to solving this case. Like I mentioned before, I've covered so many of these cases that when police chiefs start asking for the public's help, it begins to feel like a little bit of a Hail Mary pass, like they've run out of options and they really have no other place to go. I hate it when I hear that, but I understand that they have to say it, and it is what it is. I do believe that the case can be solved, and according to Reed City Police Chief Charles Davis, he told Up North Live in 2014, this homicide has always been somewhat active. People in the area have never really let it go. I know the area in which this crime took place. I am surprised the killer has never been caught. Northern Michigan, or the middle of the Mitten State, is so rural, and basically everybody knows everybody. You have tourist towns and beautiful lakes dotting the landscape, along with hundreds of thousands of pine trees. And the area is a place where if you did not know where you were going, you could so easily get lost. And again, that's why... I believe that the person who committed the crime had to have been either from the town or was familiar with the town. And that is basically where my biggest concern lies, with the idea that the killer is a local who has gotten away with the murder and has actually no intention of putting himself out there again. As most investigators like to point out, the chance this was a one-off aren't great, but the brutality of the crime, again, I think it can go both ways on that one. 
did it scare him too much or did he just not get caught for any of the other crimes that he committed? I, d- I don't know. It's it's a little up in the air at this point. And so that's the case. The person will basically most likely go to the grave being the only one that knows what really happened. Or as the cops like to say, as I mentioned before, the deathbed confession may be the only way to find any closure. And if it was a local or someone else that knows about the murder, I would assume that that person is either in danger and therefore they are reluctant to come forward. The way some of these cases do get resolved are people lose hope in one another and they turn on each other. And again, anything can happen in a murder case. And just to reference what investigators said earlier, there is a reason cases on murders are never closed. I mean, I really do hope that the family will be able to one day find some resolution. And I also hope for the city of Reed City, Michigan, that they will one day be able to close this really awful chapter in their history. We can only hope that someone's conscience gets to them and they will unload this burden to somebody who will eventually lead to a resolution in the case. Since the husband and the mistress were never considered serious suspects, you have to figure cold case squad investigators are re-examining every tip, lead, and fiber they can to solve this case. So after hearing all of the evidence in this case, who do you think killed Jeanette Roberson? Thank you guys so much for tuning into this week's episode of Who Killed Jeanette Roberson? And thank you to Best Fiends for being this week's sponsor. I'd also like to thank everyone who has taken the time out of their busy schedule to help build this show's audience, as well as help build the audience of my passion case. As a reminder, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday. I just wrapped up season one of my passion case on Monday of this past week. There are now 12 episodes of that show available for download wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And this is episode 61. So there are now 61 episodes available of Who Killed available wherever you get your favorite shows. If you have any information in Jeanette Roberson's case, please contact the Michigan State Police at 989-773-5951 or Reed City Police at 231-832-3743. Now, tips can also be submitted to the Crime Stoppers tip line at 1-800-SPEAK-UP. For the second year in a row, I will be representing Who Killed, Who Killed Amy Mahalovic, and in my passion case on the podcast row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando. This is definitely a bucket list item for any true crime fan. And as we all know at this point, the dates have been postponed. The new dates are now October 30th through November 1st. And if you guys would like to save on your ticket, you can use my promo code AMY2020. Again, that's AMY2020. Now, if you do enjoy this podcast and my other shows, you can help support independent journalism, slow burn media, as well as the shows that I produce by just clicking on the donate button or the donation button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com. That is slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. All donations help keep the lights on. You can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts 
or again, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Those five stars do help keep the important cases that I cover in the spotlight. If you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, you are always welcome to follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. So you guys, thanks so much for listening this week. And with everything that is going on, until next time, be safe and be healthy. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. 